The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are thankful for the fact that you hold on to us, that you've committed to building your church, and that does not fail. You win. We know that, and we are thankful for it. And I pray that you would remind us of that, that you hold us, that, that you carry us all the way to the end, and that the end includes you reigning in glory. Will you keep that present in our minds while in the present tense we walk not in glory, but often in sorrow and in suffering and weakness. The passage today, Lord, is going to point some of those things, point at some of those things and emphasize them, and I pray you'd help us to think well about this, this tension, really, of the glory that's coming and of the weakness that is present and how we live here in light of then, there. Teach us this morning, Lord. Help us, so pray. And we use this week and the next couple of weeks and the, the following chapter and a half or so to, to make clear to us something that is perhaps counterintuitive and challenging, but good, that we can walk with you in weakness and still find life. So teach us, we pray, Lord. Open your word. Help clear away all the distractions here and, and just help us to hear from you. Thank you. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. People boast about what they think is important and well done. Something they're proud of and want others to know about and to connect to them. So naturally, boasting is usually about accomplishments, success, that kind of thing. And in fact, it is almost a contradiction in terms to talk about boasting in weakness. That's exactly what we find Paul doing here in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For a few weeks now, we've seen Paul kind of warming to this idea of this necessary, yet no doubt about it, awkward and distasteful, but necessary, boasting that he's going to have to do about his own ministry in the middle of the church in Corinth so as to protect the church. He's been kind of moving towards that. And now here this morning, he begins by over and over again turning the idea of boasting on its head. And as he does so, he is on the one hand exposing a common misplaced desire, a common misplaced bent that we have here in this world. We as humans, we're Christians, yes, but we're humans. And as humans, we are tempted to love power and success and victory. We want to win and we feel threatened if we don't. And so we want to be reassured and, and we love to surround ourselves with and, and to put on the, the trappings of success and power. And Paul's going to like poke at that here this morning and following weeks. And at the same time, on the other hand, he's, he's going to point us towards something. He's going, to, he's going to point out something wrong and point us towards what we who are in Christ should find important, should value, and, and should want to do well and have attached to us. The Christian life of now Now, we right now are servants of a crucified Christ. 
humble and lowly, who is appealing humbly to a world all around that's watching and evaluating him. For sure, I prayed it earlier, for sure, Christ has risen and is seated on a throne in heaven reigning. But he is not lording over here. Not yet. He's still appealing humbly right now. And that's what we, the church, and we individual Christians, we have to kind of get ourselves clear on. That says a lot about how we are to live right now, following in the footsteps of the one who, while yet a king, is still appealing humbly, lowly, with holes in his wrists, holding them out, not with a scepter reigning over, not yet. We have to live, and we can live now, with him in weakness. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning and in coming weeks. A life of weakness and suffering that we should and can embrace now. If we'll set our eyes on and keep our eyes set on Christ, the man of sorrows, who has gone before us and who walks this path still now. So I'm going to begin by reading this passage. This morning it's verses 16 to verse 33 at the end of the chapter. It's a long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing and then make two observations from it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. 
2 Corinthians 11. A long passage from which we'll draw two observations, and here's the first. The church must reject fleshly leadership no matter what it seems to produce. The church must reject fleshly leadership no matter what it seems to produce. This point arises as Paul begins to talk about his boasting and about what he's not going to be boasting in, how these other guys are carrying themselves. Several times throughout the passage, beginning in verse 16 and several times afterwards, he wants to make clear again and again how awkward and, and off and inappropriate this whole thing is. He started there in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. He started there. And then in 16 and 17, I'm not actually a fool. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this on purpose. This is not Christ-like speech. This is not how I am. This is not how we should be. But I'm, I'm going to go about doing this. And then hear the bite in verses 18 to 21. Many do, in fact, boast according to the flesh. And so I'm going to boast too. Kind of has to do that to, to match them. But he's not going to boast like them. They boast according to the flesh. That is, according to the, what the world values and how, how the world's natural bent is with their natural inclinations, the things they naturally like, sinful desires that are ordinary and common what the world wants and pursues. They boast like that. And you guys amazingly, gladly put up with the worst of it. Amazingly, you bear with these false apostles. Paul's enemies, the ones he just singled out last week as being servants of Satan. You guys, you think you're so wise, you put up with these other people who treat you how? Verse 20. They make slaves of you. This has got a lot of bite in it. Paul's not happy here. They make slaves of you. You put up with them, they make slaves of you. Probably meaning they force behavior on the church. They are rigorously, rigidly teaching the law of Moses that has a whole bunch of commands. And they, they, they thought that that's how righteousness comes. And so they laid on the church a list of things that you must do. And that just makes a slave of a person. A, a further, deeper slave of sin and a slave to, to performance and a slave to failure. And they devour you and they take advantage of you. They, they take your money, they exploit you, they use you, and they arrogantly lord over you. They put on airs, slapping you in the face, which he may mean just figuratively, they humiliate you. But it's so specific, he... He probably is talking about some sort of specific practice, maybe some sort of corporal punishment that they inflicted on the church. They humiliate, they hurt, they use and abuse, they shame, they make slaves of you. Now you read that list, and obviously all that is wrong. This is not written here to teach us those things are wrong. It, that's assumed. We know that. And, naturally, given who these guys are who are doing this, he talked about them before last week, he's not writing this so as to encourage them to change. They, they need to go a different way. They need to do something else. He's not, he's not teaching us this is wrong. And he's not telling us that, that they should change. The noteworthy element here is in verses 19 and 20 both. 
you gladly bear with these fools. You gladly bear with it if someone makes slaves of you. The church is allowing itself to be treated like this. It's condoning this. It thinks itself wise and so embraces this kind of treatment. Why would it do that? We've talked about this before. Surely it all came with an appearance of power and confidence. It was very eloquently presented. It appeared to bring success. Crowds came and, and money came and money changed hands and it, and it looked like everything was, was growing and prospering and the church admired this. It, it let themselves be used and abused because these guys were bringing along with them what the church really valued what the church was tempted to be proud of and to boast in. Success. Look around, the church might say. Is, is the church growing? Good enough. Is the budget of the church growing? Good enough. Yep. Is the outside world intrigued and drawn in and attracted and, and, and coming now to sit among us and give this all a hearing? Good enough. Or if not attracted, maybe it's just in, in some way beaten back and kept at bay. If what these guys are doing grows the church and grows the budget and brings people in or, or keeps the, 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 the world at bay, good enough. That's what we want, after all. We want to win. And these guys help us win. So never mind the character and the behavior and the attitude. The results tell us these guys are the ones we want. They are successful and right. We'll take them. And Paul's biting sarcasm in verse 21 tells us all we need to know about that. He doesn't even bother to say anything other than, I guess you're right, I'm too weak to do that to you. That's not me. Sorry. It's totally wrong. A true servant of Christ and a true work of God does not overlook character issues and doesn't discard substantive holiness and the fruit of the Spirit, trading it in for external growth and impressive packaging and worldly appeal. In some ways, this point's been made already a number of times, but, but here it is again. We have to think about this and, and kind of come to grips with it. We must, the church must not allow twisted, wolfish leadership, whether they're actually wolves or just acting like wolves, wolfish leadership into its midst just because we think it's going to get us results that we can be proud of. We only need to just lift up our eyes just a second and glance back over the last six months or a year. And in my mind, I can tick off several nationally known churches, an internationally known speaking ministry, and a major university in the United States. I don't have to think very hard, and I come up with those things right there. Large, massive ministries with leaders who are, were, at best, Christians 
walking and ministering full on in the power of the flesh. And then they crashed. I'm not going to name names here, but maybe you know some of the ones I'm talking about. If you think about an international ministry in a, in a major university in several different churches, each of them, the types of collapses they went through were each a little bit different, but often there were signs seen in how those leaders treated other people. How they carried themselves, how they dealt with money. A certain bit of entitlement. A short, even an abusive temper. Greed. Pride. Seen. I'm not talking about like sins of the heart in secret. I'm talking about seen in public. How they carried themselves and how they conducted their work. Seen by others. And we know it was seen because after those public meltdowns happen and the magazine articles and the blogs conduct all the postmortems. They interview staff members, they interview donors, they interview participants, and they tell the stories about what happened. And we read about them. And we say, how did that fly? How did you guys let that go? Like Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, how did you guys let that go? Why, why did that fly? Why did it fly? Why did they let it go? Because all of those things were tremendously, let's put this in quotes, successful. Big and prospering, prosperous, every one of them. We watch, we see the signs that were there beforehand but were avoided, tolerated because they were able to deliver something wonderful and good. The kingdom of God, so it seems, was growing. And so I guess we'll just overlook this other. Look at the numbers. It's bigger. It's prospering. God must be in this, I guess. The ends never justify the means. And often the ends prove to be false anyway. We need to be careful, be warned about this. But we go one more time around the circle on this because I can say that and I'm going to bet a dollar that a good number of us here are saying like, yep, that's right. I, I can't believe that, that what they did and them ones. And We need to check something in ourselves here because where those folks went, we might very well be on the same path, just a few steps behind. Why does that happen? I'm not talking about the leaders. I'm talking about the ones beneath the leaders who tolerate it and let it, let it happen, let it, let it fly for the sake of the, of the success of the ministry, the, the growth of the university, the influence that this, the speaker is having. Why do they set aside that behavior and this clear display of, of, of abuse? Why, why did they set that aside? They love something that we love too. The people in those ministries are Christians just like us. And they're drawn by something that we might just as well be drawn by 
There is a love of success and power and the feeling of being in control that is in some ways intoxicating. But I think for me, I want to turn that around and say not so much the love of power, but the fear of powerlessness. That gets me a little more. I don't know if I love power, but I know I fear being powerless. And I look at the world around right now, and I see the tide coming in. See, I feel the water rising a little bit, and I, and I, I feel this fear. Like, I'm, I'm still above the water because I'm standing on my tippy toes, but there's a, there's a point when it's going to, and I want something that'll press that back down. And I might just, you might just overlook a few other things if they promise to press that back down. There's a fear of failure and a fear of losing to the world. I think I find in myself, and I think we all have it in us, to fear the world crashing in and winning and stealing from us our good lives and stealing our kids away from us if you're a parent. You fear the world that's coming to your kids. You feel the, fear the, the stealing of reputation and, and the, the coming on of loss, of being on the bottom, of being mocked and laughed at and shamed. The tide feels like it's coming in. And I think for many of us, that brings with it some fear and a willingness to grab hold of anything that promises to protect me. Anyone who promises to protect me. Maybe that's not you. How fortunate. I think that's common in the church. I think that's what's behind the overlooking of clear and obvious wrong. The embracing of a leader who will in some way bring to me, bring to us victory. If you identify with that at all, ask yourself, does that tell me my hope is misplaced? My hope is short-sighted. It's become like this. And I'm looking for deliverance here. There really is, there really is a hope for us as the tide comes in and rises and, and it is coming in and it is rising. But there's, there's a hope for us but it is not here in the things of the world or the people of the world or in the flesh. It's somewhere else. And as Paul pokes on this that we value, he also points towards the something else with someone else and wants to model it for us in his own life, which gets us to the second point. A true servant of Christ is formed by the weakness and suffering of Jesus. A true servant of Christ is formed by the weakness and suffering of Jesus. In verse 21 now, Paul finally shifts to his boasting, begins by laying out some important qualifications, at least important in the eyes of his, his opponents. 
Again, he's, he's like, this is so awkward and so wrong. But these, these guys say they're Hebrews, and surely they were. They were teaching the law of Moses. They, they were championing Moses. Well, I'm a Hebrew too. Same for being an Israelite and an offspring of Abraham. Each of those terms sounds familiar, sounds similar, but they have a slightly different bent to them. He's, he's saying, I am, I am culturally and linguistically Hebrew. And Israelite, I, I identify myself physically even living in the land of Israel. I, I identify with the people of God, and I'm a son of Abraham. I, I know and I cling to and I love the promises and the covenants. Basically, put all that together, they can't out-Jewish me. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Full-blown. And then, more to the point, and I'm a better servant of Christ than I could ever dream of being which is so awkward and so wrong, but here goes. I've planted 48 churches. I've led 9,267 people to Christ and trained them in witnessing. I've raised $10.7 million since the beginning of last fiscal year. Isn't that what he should say? But that's not at all what he says. We're way too familiar with this. You've read this a hundred times. I just read it so you saw it again. And so... When I say that, you know, obviously it's not there. That's what's supposed to be there. They say they're servants of Christ, and what they say is, look at the size of the church, look at the budget, listen to the eloquence, watch the people stand in awe. And Paul says, I'm far better than that. I've worked so very hard, and I've been thrown in prison so much more often, and I've been beaten so many times, and almost died more than I can remember. Really? You are not very good at this, Paul. <laughs> Have you not ever read a missionary prayer letter? At the least, you have to say, these are the things that God has done through me. But these are the things. This is how much and when. And Paul says, nope, this is, this, in fact, this exactly is what I mean to say. Eight different times. I was so clear on the implications of the gospel that they so, Jewish and, and Roman authorities both, so thoroughly rejected me and were so infuriated that they beat me to within an inch of my life. The Jews flogged me and the Romans used rods. Oh, and one other time, mob rule took over and they stoned me and thought I was actually dead. I'm a far better servant of Christ than these guys. I've been shipwrecked three times. This is before the book of Acts, the shipwreck there. So this is actually four times. And in fact, what we realize is that actually almost none of this is in the book of Acts. This is a little window into the life of Paul that is just otherwise unknown. Paul's life was truly very, very hard. Shipwrecked and stranded Verse 26, on the move constantly and in danger. He uses the word danger eight times in that verse. He spent years living and breathing and sleeping and eating in danger. In toil and hardship through sleepless nights. We should think of him there as working with his hands into the night to make and to repair leather goods and make and repair tents so as to, 
to provide for himself, to support himself, so he can minister during the daytime. He's, he's burning the candle at both ends, and there rarely is enough, so he's often in shortage of food and clothing and shelter, and he's exhausted. And on top of all that, there's the daily pressure of the anxiety over the churches. He knows full well the vulnerability of all these little fledgling congregations scattered over the northern part of the Roman Empire. And his heart is full of concern for them. There is just so much vulnerability there. They are attacked physically with violence. They are attacked spiritually with temptation. And I'm just so concerned about them. They, they are so vulnerable as he sits there and prays at night by candlelight while working, exhausted, nursing the wounds from last week's beating. This is the life of Paul. I'm a far better servant of Christ than these guys. But if you make me boast to prove it, I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. Here's one more kind of odd boast to make, sort of the high point, the low point of his boasting. He retells the story of Acts chapter 9. God is my witness. This is true. I went to Damascus. The Lord saved him on the road to Damascus and shortly thereafter showed him, you're going to be my apostle, and this is what your life is going to be like, preaching and how much suffering you're going to endure. And that began immediately. He preached in Damascus, irritated the government there, and they laid in wait to kill him. And what happened? A power confrontation of deliverance, preaching of the gospel and mass conversion, angelic presence to cause the enemies to fall on their face. Nope. The mighty apostle curled up in a basket and was lowered down the wall, snuck away in the darkness. Humiliating. Line four in the resume. So as to boast in the things that show his weakness. Now that statement in verse 30 comes up again later in chapter 12. He's working towards something that is really the main reason he brings that up. So he's, he's going somewhere with that, but he's not there yet. Here, he doesn't say what he's going to say there. He says something different. He's got a different, a different angle that he's working on, a different reason that he's boasting like this this morning. You remember chapter 2, verse 14? Back in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talked about his life was one of being led around in triumphal procession, which is a victory parade of an ironic sort. To be led around in a triumphal procession, if you were here way back then, that's a Roman victory parade. And when the Romans organize a victory parade, the people they are leading around are the vanquished slaves, chained led to be mocked by the Roman crowds lining the streets. Paul's led around, conquered, led around in chains, he's saying. A display, the captives would display the power of Rome. He's a display of the power of the one who captured him, Jesus. 
He led around, mocked. So he comes back to that, not illustrating it, not saying it, but illustrating it here. This is, what, this is what I meant by that. This is what my life has been like. So here's me. Here's my resume. Physical weakness and suffering, internally consumed with it, with a concern for and then living for Christ's sheep. Okay? And then here's them. The other guys. Physically triumphant, glory hounds. Powerful using and abusing Christ's sheep for their own agendas. So here's the point. Which one looks like he's been captured by Christ? Which one's being led by Christ for Christ's purposes? In fact, which one looks like Christ himself? Jesus walked the earth, a traveling teacher with the power of God at his disposal, and yet weak, a man of endless suffering and shame, a man of sorrows, beaten and rejected by the world, stripped naked and hung to a cross, hung on a cross until he died. And Jesus says, I'm your master, and no servant is better than his master. So which one is the true servant? And how does Jesus exercise his reign right now? Does he exercise his reign right now with a scepter from on high, destroying all of his enemies? Does he look like, does it, does it look like he, he's two feet on the earth, reigning in power, like his kingdom has come, that it is here in glory? Does it look like that? Or does he still hold out pierced hands, pleading, asking people, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest, but come. Or does he say, come or else? Which is it? Which is it? How does he reign right now? Does he reign in might? Or does he reign in humble weakness and meekness? Which, which is it? How does he reign? And what does he look like? And what does it look like to follow him? Which one is it? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. It's obvious, right? It's obvious. The answers are all obvious. The problem is they're not the ones we want. You know what the right answer is, but you wish it was the other. I wish sometimes that he was two feet on the earth, scepter in hand, reigning and putting an end to all this crap. Because that stuff is infuriating and really threatening. I've never been flogged, never been beaten with rods, never been stoned, never been shipwrecked. But in a really, 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 really gentle way, I can sort of feel that. And it is not comfortable. Is it? Because you can feel it too. And the answer to the question, which one is more like Jesus, is dead obvious, but we wish that it was the other people. We wish that what was more like Jesus was success, was growth, was prosperity, was power, was influence. It just isn't. It seems like it should be. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be right that a king, that if a king was to, to interject himself into the world, it would come with power? Well, it did, but not of the sort that we want. 
became lowly and humble and weak, surrendered, turning the other cheek, meekly letting himself be crucified. That's the way that Jesus chose to save. That's the way that he provides atonement, the way he puts to death our pride. Because he says to us, you can trust what you see with your eyes and you can trust what makes sense in the world or you can trust this humble, meek, crucified one. That's the only place you find life. Do you trust me or not? This approach through weakness confronts our pride like no other approach can. The approach of a Savior who promises in power to change us, to forgive us and make us new, if you come low, if you come to the one who was low and you come low, giving up all of yourself, that confronts our pride in a way that we are really uncomfortable with. But there's the power of God to save. There's the offer of life in a way that's very contrary to the world that humbles us if and as we will cling to inability, if and as we will cling to our own weakness and lean into the strength and ability of God. Paul shows us that right here. He shows us that the contrast is, is so clear. But maybe the, the way that we can end this, this part, of this is, the title of the sermon is part one because there's more to say about this coming chapter. Maybe the way we can end this part one is to think, how did Paul get there? Obviously, that's the spot to be. And obviously, that's challenging and really hard to me, really hard for me. How did he get there? Well, he told us that already in his book. If you remember chapter 5, verse 14. Look back there at chapter 5. You, you could say all of the end of chapter 11 is Paul embracing a life that's really hard. How did he get there? Well, verse 14 of chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this. Now, if you want more on this, you can look back at the sermon from before. But that little phrase right there, we have concluded this. You could hang there and say, Paul had to think something through and understand something, all that we've been talking about here. That's who Jesus is. That's how Jesus came. He did not come in might. He came humble and low. And as I think it through, I conclude something. That he died. That's, that's meek and humble and weak. That he died once for all. And therefore all have died. He's speaking about Christians here. He died for us, and we are dead in Christ, Paul says. And so I think it through, and I conclude. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I think it through and I conclude, I am dead in him. And that had a purpose. That those who live, I'm also alive in him, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live it for him. Brothers and sisters, we can read this, this list of things and say, there's what the true servant of Christ looks like. How do you get that? By thinking it through carefully, what did that suffering, low, weak servant do for me? He died for me and was raised for me. That love compelled Paul. That love is what drove him to city after city through shipwreck and beating and, and countless dangers. That love, not a sense of obligation, not a sense of comparison to other people, but a clear-eyed, consistent, fixed view of this one who walked this path before me, for me, and loved me like that. He thought it through and concluded, my life is gone and a new life is given to me. These words are, are so familiar to us. And if you're a Christian, you've heard that before. The point is Paul had to reason it through, wrestle with it and say, yes, true. I want to follow him. And I can follow him. This is the realization that forms a true servant of Christ. I want to follow him. I'm loved by him. I can follow him because I'm loved by him. You may, you may look around, you may feel the tide coming in and, and the water rising, and it is. And you may feel there's a threat against me, and there is. And then you have to conclude something. But my life is in the hands of Jesus, and it is. And so I am secure, and you are. You can't and won't live a life sold to him without walking that through and coming to believe it. And probably if you're like me, you have to walk it through again and come to believe it again. And again. Your life, Christian, is hidden in Christ and you are secure. And as he walks the path of this kind of weakness and suffering, you can follow him. Would you, I pray, would you 
And would I be compelled, be controlled by this love of Christ, called to walk after him and not fear the world and its threats? Now, all of that, it, it, I'm kind of bumping right up against next week's passage and, and what, what follows on after this. So there, there's more to say about that. But this morning... Christian, set your eyes on Christ. Would you be compelled by his love for you? A love that came to you not in, in power and in might, but when the lamb was silent and led to slaughter. That's when his power came to you and saved you. That's how he shows his love for you. And that's the path we are to follow him on, a path of weakness and lowliness. Let me stop there and pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.